God is asking you to believe him for something he's already accomplished, that when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, that that is sufficient to save you. There's only one answer that would express someone who's born again, and it's the fourth one. And again, I'm saying that on the authority of the Bible and not my own thoughts. It's faith in Christ alone. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy, and today is part three of our series on understanding the new birth. Pastor Carl explains that eventually we all come to a point in our lives where we are accountable to God. Let's join Pastor Carl in John chapter 3. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and your life begins to change, and so good works are merely the fruit of salvation. So how did you answer? If you gave one of the first three answers, the Bible would say you're not born again. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Am I judging a Mormon to say he's not a Christian? Of course not, because he denies the deity of Jesus. He says Jesus is just a man. Jesus said, if you believe I'm just a man, you're going to die in your sin. They have to decide. That's not a judgment I'm making. That's a judgment Scripture is making. By the way, 700 years later, this little brazen snake is seen again. Let me read it to you. It's in 2 Kings. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and it reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. Those were idols. He also broke in pieces, listen, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the son of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, meaning a, a piece of brass. They had taken this object that God said, all I want you to do is believe what I say. Moses is going to set it up on a pole, and if you look and do what I say, you believe in my provision, you will instantly be healed. And again, the snake is in the likeness of the one that bit them. And Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin on our behalf as he is raised up on a cross. But here they are 700 years later, and that snake becomes an idol that they're worshiping at. Unless we be too sanctimonious, People today are not that much different. They cling to their church membership or to their christening, to their profession of faith, to their confirmation, to last rites, to something other than Christ alone to save them. All right, now that's the greatest truths that are presented to Nicodemus. That brings us now to the greatest text, which is, of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Without question, this is the most loved, the most memorized, the most preached, the best known verse in all of Holy Scripture. Now, as to whether these are John's words that are given here as a commentary or whether Jesus' words, we can run that debate. 
And there are red letter editions of the Bible. The first red letter edition of the Bible came out in 1899. It was actually pretty controversial when Louis Kloppish put it out because he took all the words of Jesus and put them in red letters. And so some of you may have a Bible this morning and John 3.16 is in red letter and some of it you're in a black letter. Well, you know, who said it? Does it matter? No. And are the red letters more inspired than the black letters? Not at all. It's all equally inspired and authoritatively the Word of God. And I could give an argument both ways. John wrote this or Jesus said it. It doesn't change a thing. In either case, for God so loved the world. In other words, you see the very first word for, for God. What is that doing? It's connecting it to the prior verse. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Let me explain. It's the Greek word gar. Let me give some light on this. For God so loved the world. He wants us to understand the relationship between that Old Testament illustration and what Jesus is going to accomplish for us. And by the way, the world here means world. It means exactly that. Now, there are some of my Christian brethren who believe in what they call a limited redemption, a limited atonement. Sometimes they call it a particular atonement. And they say, well, Jesus didn't die for all men, but he died just for the elect. Look, I can look at anyone in the eye without giving some kind of fancy gymnastical language. Well, Jesus died just for those who will repent and believe. And that's what they're doing. When you hear that kind of language, you're listening to someone who doesn't believe Jesus died for all. I can look at anyone in the face and say, Christ died for you. He gave himself for you. And when you come to the last verse in this chapter, you discover that Christ's death is not only the basis of salvation, it's also the basis of condemnation. No one will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to believe, you didn't die for me, so I couldn't believe. No, he died for all, and the world means world. The scope of the atonement is unlimited. But they'll say, but what about John chapter 10 and verse 11? Let me read it to you. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, this verse is not contradictory. It's not teaching that Jesus just died for the sheep. This is not dealing with the extent of the atonement. It's dealing with the intent of the atonement. Jesus knew not everyone would believe. Why? Because they choose not to believe. And so as he goes to the cross, knowing that some people will mock him even at the foot of the cross, and they will die mocking him, it's those who will believe. For the joy set before him, for those who will call upon him in faith, that he lays his life down but the scripture is clear that he gave himself for God so loved the world. Now, wait a minute. For God so loved the world. How is the death of Jesus an expression of the love of the Father? I mean, Phil Donahue years ago, he was a famous American talk show host, and he had Jerry Falwell Sr. on, and he said, well, you know, if God the Father really loved the world, he would have stepped out of heaven and he would have died. So how is Jesus dying on the cross a demonstration of the Father's love? It would be no demonstration at all if Jesus were only a man. It would be no demonstration at all if he were only a man. But if Jesus is God as he claims, and as the Scriptures prophesied concerning the Messiah... 
then it's a full demonstration of God loving us. Because the members of the Godhead are inseparable. Jesus will say in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in God giving Christ, he was giving himself. The members of the Godhead are absolutely inseparable. It's a full demonstration of Christ's love, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of the Father's love, and we might add the Holy Spirit's love. That's another sermonette, because in giving of his son, he was giving of himself. D.L. Moody was in England doing one of his crusades, and he met a young budding English preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse. And this particular Englishman was drawn to Moody as an evangelist. Morehouse asked Moody, he said, if I'm ever in America, do you think I could preach in your church? And of course, you didn't jump in an airplane in those days. Very few people ever made the trip across the water. And he thought, yeah, if you are in Chicago, you can preach in my church, thinking he'd never have to fulfill that promise. Well, Henry Morehouse showed up one day at his doorstep, and he thought, well, okay, I'll let you preach. And he thought if he botched it, he could fix it up in the evening service. And so Henry Morehouse got up and he preached on this text, John 3, 16. And he preached it with such passion and clarity that Moody invited him to preach that night and the next night, and he preached for the next week on John 3, 16. By the way, if you've never done this, this might be a little helpful exercise this week. Take John 3, 16. And just emphasize 10 key places in it. For God, so love the world. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. And go through the whole verse, 10 key spots. It'll be a real blessing to you because it will cause you to meditate and really think about what's being said. So Henry Morehouse became the man who moved the man who moved millions. He really moved Moody. And God used him in a powerful way that week. And on the final night of the series, he said this. Morehouse wrote, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder and ascend to heaven and walk on those streets of gold. And suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel, who stands in the presence of God and ask him, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? He would say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's how much. God loves the world. Now look at verse 16 again. He's referred to here as the only begotten son. Some of your translations say the uniquely begotten son, the one and only son. It's the Greek word monogene. It translates into English with two words. It's used only of one other person in all of the Bible, of Isaac. Isaac is called the monogene, the uniquely begotten son of Abraham, because it was a miracle baby. Abraham was 100, she was 90, both of their bodies were as good as dead, and God rejuvenates their bodies and gives them the ability to conceive a baby. Well, Jesus is a miracle baby, of course, in an entirely different realm. The one who had no beginning or end became a man. He left heaven. He is uniquely begotten. Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. God was going to be prophesied that he would become a man. 
And so he was virgin born and it was necessary that he be virgin conceived because if he had a human father, he would have taken on the sin nature. But God cannot associate himself with sin in that respect. And so God became a man. And so he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And so this verse says, for God so loved the world, he gave his uniquely, his only begotten son. And it reveals a truth, both negative and positive, if you think about it, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have today, right now, present tense, eternal life. Negatively, he says, you will not perish. And by perish, he does not mean be annihilated. When the Bible uses the word, it speaks of a conscious awareness and an eternal place called hell. But positively, when you believe, you receive eternal life, an unbroken relationship with the living God. Now, that brings us finally to the world's greatest test. Beyond the greatest truths and the greatest texts, there is now the world's greatest test, the world's greatest test. Now, let's read verse 17. I'm almost finished. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Circle that word, send. You see, you and I, like Nicodemus, were merely born into this world. Jesus was sent into the world. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. What we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation of the Son. The prophet said, a child will be born unto us. Wonderful. What's the child's name? The child shall be named Mighty God. The virgin-born Son of God is going to take on our humanity, and His name will be called Mighty God. And so at the moment of conception, He's God and man, truly God, truly man, undiminished deity, sinless humanity, inseparably combined into one person, Christ the Lord. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, you see that word judge? It carries the idea of condemnation. And the whole reason Jesus came into this world was not to condemn you, but to save you. Why didn't he have to condemn you? Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. Circle that word already because it totally dismantles the way some of you are thinking this morning. Stay with me. The devil wants some of you to stray right now because he wants to keep you in his kingdom. Already. You are judged already. There comes a point in your life when you are accountable to God. The Scripture does not give a specific age. But when you reach that age of accountability, God says you are judged already. Condemned already. Written across your forehead is guilty. There's not some future evaluation where God determines based on your human merit whether or not you're condemned or not condemned. No, you're already on the broad road that leads to destruction. You're already condemned already. By nature, Paul will say in Ephesians, we are children of wrath. In verse 36, he will say, the one who believes has life. The one who does not believe... The wrath of God is living. It's abiding on him right now. You are already under the condemnation of God, and this is why we need to flee to Christ. And so when you flee to Christ, you take on a new identification, but you have to flee to Christ. You have to choose whether or not you will come to him. Our position is something like a man who is in prison, who is to be executed, but the president offers him a pardon. 
And the pardon is good news if the man will receive the pardon. But if he rejects the pardon, then he will face the condemnation that his crime will bring. Well, God says, you are judged already. But the God who set the penalty said, I'll pay the penalty so that you can escape the penalty. But if you choose not to believe, then you will experience a just condemnation. Recently, there was a man who was told that if he was given a certain particular drug, he could be cured from his disease, but he refused to take the drug. And so he had no one to blame but himself. And if you die and are condemned eternally, you will have no one to blame but yourself. We have already been tried, already been found wanting. That's the truth, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God doesn't take your unbelief lightly. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now, what does light do? I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was looking for something. It was so dark, these blackout curtains, and so I I turned on my phone because I had to see. It dispels the darkness so you can see. And God sheds light into your heart, but you can close off that light and, and ignore and repel that light, or you can respond to the light that God has given you. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see that word love? Sometimes people say, well, agape love is God's love. Well, that's a half-truth. Agapao is a verb. We anglicize it. We call it agape love. But sometimes agape love is man's love. The same word used here, they love their evil, they love the darkness, is the same word that's used in John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world. They choose darkness, sin, over light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So don't buy into the simplistic explanation that agape love is God's love because sometimes it is man's willful love to choose against the living God. But the Son came into the world that he might explain the Father as John 1 teaches. The light has come into the world, and he has explained him. He has literally exegeted him. God put a face on God the Father so that we could understand what he was like. Now look at verse 21, or verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why do they hate the light? And by the way, as we move into the last of the last days, the, the camps are becoming more and more divided. The problem that's going on in America is not political. It's moral. There are two moral camps. Some who are born again, who have influenced unborn again people, but enough where they've salted and lighted them enough where they know that certain things like taking a baby's life on their birthday, that that is murder. They get that. They get that homosexuality is a perversion. They get that. It's unnatural. They understand that. And then you got this camp over here because they love the darkness. Man, they they don't like you. They hate you. And there'll probably come a time when they will literally physically persecute you. They love their deeds. And so they don't want to come to the light. Why? Because they want to rationalize their sin. Oh, this is a woman's right to her own body. Well, a woman has a right over her own body. But the baby ain't her body. It's a separate entity. 
That's what Scripture teaches. So there are camps are dividing, and people who, who love darkness, they don't want to come to the light because they have to admission, admit homosexuality is sin, premarital sex is sin, extramarital sex is sin, drunkenness is sin, lying is sin, cheating is sin. You have to come to grips with your sin and call it for what God says it is. And so unless you change your mind or repent, you'll perish. Look at verse 21, the contrast. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Two contrasts. The person in verses 19 and 20, they love the darkness, they do evil, and they hate the light. Whereas the person here in verse 21, who's twice born, he practices the truth, and so he has no problem coming to the light. Now, some people are saying, well, I'm not immoral. I'm a decent person. I don't practice evil, but neither are they practicing the truth. I'm here on this Lord's day, not because I'm being paid to be here, but I'm here because this is the Lord's day. And ever before I was a pastor, every Sunday I was with God's people. Why? Because he tells me on the first day of the week, I'm supposed to assemble with his people. Some people don't practice the truth. They talk about the things they don't do but they don't give any evidence to the things that they should be doing, which a second birth brings about. God will demonstrate that he has wrought something into my heart as my life changes. And if my life doesn't change, you can go around and say you're born again all you want, but you're deceived. So let me ask two questions in application. Number one, where are you looking today? Where are you looking? Are you looking to yourself to save yourself? Maybe to some priest or some church or baptism or a confessional or confirmation. Where are you looking? Are you looking to Christ? Because he is your only hope. Augustus Top Lady wrote in 1776 these words to a hymn he penned. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain. I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Where are you looking? God brought some of you today because he wants you to look at Christ. You can be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message, God warns, don't harden your heart. You know what the temptation will be for some of us? I don't want to admit I'm not a Christian. That's just old, ugly pride, and Satan will send some of his fiery darts in that direction so that you dig in your heels and in your pride, you'll say, I'm not going to admit I'm not a Christian. I didn't even give close to the right answers. Well, you're not a Christian. That's what God says, but that's why he brought you here. So you have to decide, where will you look? And then we might just ask, where are you pointing people? I mean, if you've received the free gift of eternal life, it's good news. And you should tell people. And you can get the credit for what Jesus did if you will come today in faith. And faith is just believing what God said. Each and every Israelite had to choose what seemed absolutely, incredibly insane and supernatural to just look at a raised serpent and he would instantly live. And you have to choose whether you're going to believe that in reference to the cross. That's what faith is. It's taking God at his word. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Don't leave unless it's an absolute emergency.
Maybe God brought you here today because he wants to save you. And God cannot lie. He keeps all of his promises. We exercise faith every day. We believe what God promises, but not only do we believe what God promises, we believe what man promises. Think about it. Some of you, when you sat in that chair, you didn't examine it. You just, in faith, sat in it. You trusted it was good. We believe people every day. You've never seen the money in the bank that your bank says you have, but you believe it in faith. And God is asking you to believe his word because man's word is often untrue and inconsistent. But God always tells the truth. And God says, if you will call upon Jesus, he'll save you right now for all of eternity. But you have to choose whether or not you will believe. Will you say there in the quietness of your own heart, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But you told me I must be born again to enter God's kingdom. And I want to be born again. And you said I can be born again if I would look to your death and resurrection. So I thank you that you died in my place, taking my punishment. And I call upon you in faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will make it public and confess you before men. Now, Father, I thank you if someone this morning here or in one of our campuses crossed that line. Give them the courage to make it public this morning. And for those of us maybe who have done this decades ago, May we, with the Apostle Paul, say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. May our lips be no longer sealed, but open in praise and in testimony and in witness. Father, some of us have lost family members, and we've not shared with them. And some of us inwardly fear, Father, that if the phone call came today, that they were dead, that we would know they were lost. God, we have neighbors, friends at work. Help us not to fear what people think of us. Lord Jesus, you said not to fear those who can at most kill the body. Help us to fear you, God, who someday will kill both body and soul in hell of every unbeliever. Help us to be good stewards of the gospel, not just on friend day, but every week of the year. We love you, our Father. We thank you for writing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help us in this new week that as we go, that we might make disciples. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. This concludes Pastor Carl's sermon on understanding the new birth. Please join us next week for A Marriage Made in Heaven. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program UNB-019. Tomorrow, 
Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.